Diane, it's Sunday, 11.58 in the morning. I'm sending you the latest episode of season two of Horror Vanguard's Twin Peaks Retrospective. I think you're going to get a kick out of this one. Now begins season two, episode 10, The Man Behind the Glass. Do you want to <laughs> lead us lead us into hell? Lead us lead us into the pit. <laughs> oh dear. Hey, do you want to right, lead us in? Everyone. Yeah. Yes. Let's do it. Let's absolutely. Do it. All right. Good morning. Good evening. Good night, everyone. How are we doing? We're back with another episode of our Twin Peaks retrospective. Today we'll be discussing episode ten of season two, The Man Behind the Glass. I am one of your co-ghosts. I am Ashley Darrow, joined as always by the one, the damn fine John, aka at the Lickrick guy. How's it going, John? I am good. I am. Uh, I am. I am. <laughs> I'm damn need, fine. I'm in need of a damn fine cup of coffee. But let us <laughs> let us do this. Let's continue our uh, our autopsy of Twin Peaks. <laughs> so okay okay we we let's let's kick off this episode by talking about a new fan favorite albert uh yes let's let's do finally finally we get back to albert uh who is continues it honestly is shaping up to be uh mvp of the opening of season two in my opinion just yes yeah oh yeah just game changing stuff um shakes up the dynamic between the characters really nicely um and there is a there's a moment that I know you wanted to talk about in this episode. Oh, abs- absolutely. So in season one, Albert is very much just kind of the, the, the an expression of these really simplistic thoughts about the tensions between the urban core and and the rural and external and externalized. But we have we have now something very exciting happen. Uh, uh, so Albert is doing his thing. He's the forensics guy. He's he's giving information. Uh, to Coop and and our sheriff and you know of course he keeps making disparaging comments about the sheriff and the people the rural community of Twin Peaks and like which is ironic because Twin Peaks is a population of over 50,000 so it's not quite nowhere America um, but like y- you know like uh, uh, the sheriff grabs him by the collar and he's like last time I only socked you this time you'll get much worse <laughs> and- Albert grabs him by the collar and the setup is perfect because up until this point, we, we, we would only have known that these two would have ever had an exchange of physical violence. And then Albert starts talking about how, how he's fighting violence on a global scale and that, that he's walking in the path of Martin Luther King uh, Jr. And that he's, he's, he's a man of great peace and that all of his actions stem from a place of love. And and he he ends he ends their interaction by saying, "I love you, Sheriff Truman." It's it's I it's, love this. It's delightful. It's so good because it shows he, Albert's having the same experience that Cooper had, right? He's he's becoming integrated into the into the kind of like psychological strangeness of the town. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because nobody really, nobody really believes that the that the FBI guy is inspired by Martin Luther King. That's a great joke. That's that's an, oh that's a, yeah. 
It's, it just reminds me of that tweet where someone pre- pretended oh, Jibuki, to, be the, yeah. to, to be the FBI. It was like, just because we killed Martin Luther King doesn't mean we can't miss him. <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's like, that's what this joke is. That's what this bit is. It's so good. <laughs> and even even like, you know, like like Cooper Cooper gets in on the action by by saying, uh, oh, what is it? Albert, Albert's path is a strange and difficult one. <laughs> Yeah, it's like I'm. I'm so curious to see how they're going to take this kind of like, um, you know, almost a stereotypical stock character, and do some really interesting, kind of reconstructive work. Because really, the whole point is like, if Twin Peaks is the space in which all of the buried libidinal uh, economics of your own subjectivity get exposed, maybe that is the lie that the FBI tells themselves, right? Maybe that is the line that they tell themselves that they are. I think I think lots of people, especially on the left, fall into this trap of thinking that our kind of class enemies or our opponents in in politics are uh, are just kind of bad. When in fact, isn't it isn't it kind of worse that like the the global infrastructure of capitalism is maintained and served by people who maybe quite sincerely believe that they are in the in, working in the interests of global peace. Right? Isn't that isn't that maybe a, a kind of worse thought? Isn't that harder to deal with? Right, right. And honestly, I think it it, it offers us kind of I think a point of hope and a point of opportunity because it, it reveals that moral analyses kind of fail. And it's 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 these these are material relations, not ones that are are extrapolated to a kind of like liberal moralism. You know, like it's I'm I'm less concerned with the content of someone's heart and more concerned with like what do they do with their hands? You know, in in in, in I'm inverting pinheads. It's it's not uh, hearts but hands that call us. Um. Oh no. The way no. I that that's that is the inversion. I'm absolutely messing this up. Absolutely messing this up. I'm leaving it all in, uh, because here in the land of Twin Peaks, we we get to contain complexities, which I think <laughs> is like one of the things that I was thinking about is kind of your commentary about tar while watching this episode. <laughs> Um, because one of, one of your one of your strong points from our Tar episode was that Lydia Tar is not a person, you know. Lydia Lydia Tar is part of a cinematic text, if you will, and like like Albert's not a person in Twin Peaks. The FBI isn't real in Twin Peaks. This is part of like a fabric of a text, you know. And so like like you know kind of like what what are these things, you know like, like what are the what are the signposts here? And like Albert is very much a like cynical like like he comes off as a cynical black-hearted you know deeply jaded man who has nothing but loathing and and for him to to tell sheriff truman he loves him and for him to mean it i i think that is that that is an incredible like cooper is right that that is a strange and difficult path to walk like we see the kind of like the joke is almost on us in a way because we we've been assuming this whole time that albert is this ontologically flat character free of any complexity but no he's actually like this writhing living contradiction in terms oh what a great point um what a great point we also get introduced to another new favorite character of mine i who uh (laughs) we get we get introduced to dick tremaine resident Richard. (laughs) richard tremaine resident fancy boy Residence yes. fancy the fanciest lad in all of Twin Peaks. 
Um, and what do you what do you think about him? What do you think about this absolute? <laughs> what do you think about this Legend. absolute incredible character? So like like we we get this amazing exchange right uh, between Hawk, uh, Richard Trumaine, uh, and like where like so like Richard Trumaine goes by the name Dick. It, it like it's very clearly like the the joke is very obvious. <laughs> um, he is a dick, um, and like like Hawk just roasts him alive with, with like this this little like word game word game pun. Uh, it's, it's just a fantastic sequence, and like I, I think it really opens up the space of kind of contrasting Dick and Andy. It, with like like a, like a masculinity from the from the standpoint of like like a masculinity's discourse, mm-hmm. right? Because I think they're both. I think it's really appropriate that they're both fighting over the same woman. I think it's both really appropriate that they they both struggle to be pretend fathers, and like they both represent this kind of like like two mutually opposed but mutually interwoven like views of a broken masculinity. Because you've got Andy who kind of really desperately wants to be like the tough beat cop, you know, to be competent with his gun, to to be intellectually effective for the law. And then you've got Dick, who who is who's just kind of a fancy lad, right? Who who would be probably like a pickup artist if the show would have been made a few decades later or yeah, something. Yeah, he's peacocking. He's peacocking pretty hard. Yeah, oh, he's peacocking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And like, like I, I really love the juxtaposition of those two characters, especially putting them into a homosocial triangle. I mean, that's so much of the show is concerned with that, right? Is concerned with the development of the, of various uh, networks between networks of connection of these um, libidinal exchanges between people, and the fact that, like, again, all of this idealization, all of this, like, notions of like appearance versus reality is always is always kind of shown to be. Uh, indirect there's a kind of friction between these things which is you just can't eradicate um and yeah i think the show does that does some of its most interesting work where it's interrogating those kind of straightforward normative visions of what masculinity is and uh, um and and the ways in which that masculinity is often a kind of like pretext for uh violence against women oh a- a- absolutely right like the site of conflict for these two men not being quote uh, unquote not man enough isn't internal it, it isn't with each other it's it's over a woman right it, it is it is through her and by her that they fight and like you really clearly see like 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 they're they're just a, a great object lesson if you will of the the kind of like damage that patriarchal masculinities represent well i actually think that brings up the other kind of big part of this episode which is the continuing uh struggles of audrey yeah so at this point in the show uh i think we we reached the first time where audrey's agency is really stripped from her uh because we now we have a power struggle between blackie the 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 kind of uh uh you know like like the the woman who runs the brothel and uh jean renault jacques renault's older brother who is a much more competent criminal, as we will see, than his younger brother. And they, they realize who Audrey Horn actually is, and they, they uh, keep, her, keep her doped up on drugs so that she can't act. And I think it's what makes this kind of twist in her character, I think, more than just 
what we see in in other media where women are just reduced to the status of objects and props and the kind of adventures and escapades of our masculine heroes is that it, it is a turn for Audrey, right? This is a loss on her part. She had great agency used poorly or wisely is kind of irrelevant. She had tons of agency and now it's taken from her. Now she is reduced to a piece in, in a larger game. Wait, what are some of your thoughts on what's kind of going on with her character now? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, this is the, the kind of the, the moment where there's real, there's real pressure, right? That where the, the kind of the, 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 if, if we continue the kind of Gothic castle metaphor, right? Um, this is, this is the point where the, the familial patriarch stops smiling, um, and like yeah. the, the the game kind of ends like the game where she goes oh this will be fun and i'll be able to like impress this mysterious stranger from outside of town who looks very good in a tuxedo um and it's, it suddenly becomes like much more dangerous and like she realizes like uh the thing this is the point at which you kind of go what happened what happened to laura is often kind of abstracted away and what happens to mm-hmm. to uh uh, Ronette Pulaski is often abstracted away, but like with Ronette uh, uh, kind of yeah. waking back up and what's happening to Audrey, suddenly the show gets very dark very quickly. And like the thing that's important to kind of point out about this is that this is something the show does a lot, which is point out that for a lot of its women, they're, ve- they're, they're, they're almost always very close to a lot of violence, right? It doesn't take much, right? You know, think about... Um, Shelley and Leo. It doesn't take much. He can just come home one day, and like the the world could end, right? There's mm-hmm. there's there's this kind of inescapable paranoia that you has has to kind of like be inculcated if you're gonna if you're gonna. And this is, I think, again, you're quite right. Let's think about this as a kind of text and what this text is trying to say. Um, it's about this this understanding that like this is a comment or a critique of the idealized notion of American society more generally, right? It's, it is uh, Mm -hmm. a place that, that, that that necessarily places uh, women particularly, but not uh, exclusively. um, But the the show is concerned with this is placing them in like a genuine kind of, there's a sort of skin. There's a kind of a membrane at which you can very easily get pushed into something that can kill you quite horribly in Laura's case. Um, and I think this is the point at which, you know, the stakes escalate quite quickly. I so strongly, completely agree. And I think the only thing I would add to that is, is there's also notes of, again, to, to bring this up, uh, what feels like really recently, again, here on the show is Carol Clover's commentary on I Spit on Your Grave, mm, right? Yeah. Not, not only is there a gender dynamic to what is happening with Audrey's character right now, there's also a class dynamic. Audrey Horn is the daughter of the man who runs Twin Peaks, right? Of its most powerful financial and political player, whose whose criminal empire extends across the Canadian border. You know, like she is in the crosshairs, not just for gendered reasons, but also due to class position. Yes, but actually, but actually, this is this is the this is the point, right? Which is like. Audrey gets away with a lot because of who her dad is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like, this is the point where you go, well, uh, the, the patriarch's power always turns inward, right? 
you know yes, if you absolutely. if if you trouble if you trouble the structure of it this is where it'll come for you as well yes oh 100% that the structure is the structure is the thing that is being defended at all times right it, it is it is the capital p power it is the hierarchy that is the thing that is that is defended everything else is sacrificable to the construct itself yeah yeah and i think and i think this is this is a really important character moment right if you think about um and again it's it's true that i think a lot of the show is often reduced to just like it's kind of weird moments but the weird moments are always in service of something and i think audrey is a really good example of the way in which the show is trying to propose a particular aesthetic to achieve very concrete uh, very straightforward and very kind of like well executed narrative goals. Oh yeah, yeah. This is this has been a really heavy turn that we've taken here for a bit talking about Audrey. So I think we should talk about something a little lighthearted, and that's whether or not Laura Palmer is dead enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, because apparently no is the answer, right? Uh, what's um, slide? She's not buried deep. She wasn't buried deep enough. Yeah. Um, spoken by Donna after realizing that James and uh, Maddie are having a thing. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, this is the this is the kind of fracture point of the things that we started to see last episode. Um, James, uh, a clearly, uh, you know, there are three young people all dealing with kind of various traumas. Maddie is like kind of feeling the strain of being of being Laura. You know, this desperate... It's actually a really sad moment where she kind of, like, tries to assert that, that, you know, that's not who she is. She she just came for the funeral. And now, you know, it's sort of like everybody has projected onto her this new identity. Um, What do you think about about that scene at Laura's um, headstone and this notion of, like, communing with the dead? So so I think that this is... This moment, to me, was kind of a moment that's counterposed with what Bobby says at Laura's funeral, Mm. you know, like, like, like Bobby very correctly points to the rest of the town of twin peaks and be like, no, you all killed her. You know, like, like it's the system sustaining that ended Laura's life. And then now we have, you know, Donna here, you know, at the grave later on, you know, like, like lamenting that even in death, the, the town is still orbiting entirely around Laura, that it's, it's still kind of hers in, in a way. And nothing can kind of grow beyond that. And there's something like, there's like a grim note of capitalist realism there. You know, like we invented a Laura Palmer and now that's all we have for the rest of forever is different riffs. We'll have Iron Man Laura Palmer. We'll have Bat Laura Palmer. We'll have Laura Palmer versus Star Wars. And it's just going to be the, it's it's just, it's just the deck chair shuffled until the ship goes down. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's, it's a really kind of relatable moment. You know, I, I maybe said when we were talking about the very first episode in the season that it was a bit goofy, but I think the show has really, the, the show really finds its feet in genuinely kind of heartfelt um, and kind of really well handled emotional beats. Um, and I think it's like, it's a very relatable moment, this idea of like realizing that you will always be the very worst version of yourself right especially if you come from like a small town or if you come from a very kind of tiny community and it's this the kind of desperate need to get out right you have to get out because it's only by getting out that you might get the chance to be something other than what you always already are yeah and one one of the things that you and i have talked about a lot is that like a lot of horror meditates on this idea of 
it's uh, change might be unsettling, but the deeper fear, the kind of more meaningful and impactful fear is, is what would happen if you couldn't change? What would happen if change ceased mm. for you and, and you were frozen as what you are for this day ever forward? Yeah, exactly. And I think one of the really scary things that kind of emerges in this episode and kind of Twin Peaks's interesting relationship with horror as a genre is that to Donna and to, and to we, we see this revelation through her, Laura can never change. The way Laura died, how, who she was when she died, what the world made her, all of those things together means that she, she died this static thing woven into this kind of great, greater tapestry of lies and crime and misogyny and that, that, free, that freezes her in death. Right. Like, like no one, no one is, is, is kind of like, it, it will take oh, about two decades, give or take for, for people to grow past Laura Palmer's life and death. Mm. You know, like it, it is, it is a stultifying thing for the community. And that is, that is something really scary to know that that's also true for any of us, that depending on how we live our lives, there is a chance that our deaths will be a cause of great stagnation. Yeah, uh, and the sense of like inevitability that like the same things are going to happen mm, yeah. again, right? The same, the same things are going to recur, um, and you know you sort of, you sort of realize that that's what's Maddie's Maddie is afraid of that, and you know Audrey is afraid of that when you know uh, there's this kind of like scene of like weaponized uh, drug addiction, which is like genuinely really yeah. really kind of grim and unsettling, mm-hmm. and you go, oh yeah, this happened to Laura as well. Right. This was and th- this idea of like the se- the 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 unexorcised ghost of Laura Palmer is very much active in this episode, right? Oh, deeply, deeply, deeply. There's there, there's so much about the the kind of like developing of the early part of season two that is really like the the echoing consequence of everything that happened to Laura is now like all of those material processes didn't go away. They're now just being distributed again throughout new players in the community. Mm, yeah. So, uh would you would you like to, to let's let's return to something silly for a minute. Let's 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 talk about what the hell is going on with Nadine. Yeah, so uh, but again, this is a story that's actually really tra- tragic. <laughs> Right, you get to. Yes, yes, well, I mean, yeah. we get to, we get to hear Hank's story of how they ended up together. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like two two young people, kind of emotionally mixed up. Didn't really stop to think about it, and the story of how Nadine loses loses her eye. Like it's an, it's really it's again, you know, Nadine was kind of a joke in the first season, and in this, you kind of go there's a there's something so tragic of this idea of being in an unhappy marriage from the, from the off. And being the one responsible for like blinding someone in in one eye, being the cause of them losing an eye, and they never, mm-hmm. they never, they never blame you. And you like, there's a lot of like emotional complexity happening to this. Um, but what do what do you think of what happens to Nadine in this episode? So, so Nadine had, uh, attempted to take her own life by overdosing on pills. Uh, went into a coma and has woken up, but now she has reverted to her 18-year-old personality. You know, she now believes that she is an 18-year-old. And not only that, but, like, believes that everyone around around her sees herself as an 18-year-old, right? 
you know, when, when she looks at the people of Twin Peaks now, she sees them as they were when they were 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had the most brain rotted two online thought when when I was looking at that. And that's that's the kind of the, the perennial tweet that pops up and causes discourse every now and then, which is, uh, uh, would you be a 18 again? Would you be a teenager again? Or would you take a million dollars? And and it's like we 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 see that play out here. Being a teen again is literally hell. That is literally a nightmare beyond human conception. That that drags us in, into the 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 hell drags of our own existence. And a million dollars could deal with a lot of material problems we face. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like this is the this is uh, the miracle, right? Uh, his doctor says it's better than a trip to Lords. You know. Taking her oh, off yeah, to yeah. France for a miracle. She sings the song. She wakes up, and she thinks she's eighteen. You go. It's very much you know the finger on the monkey's paw has curled, and you get mm-hmm. exactly you get exactly what you want, right? Because this is this is the thing that makes me feel it's quite tragic. Because there's this idea of like, if you could, if you could, would you go back to the very first time that you met someone that you've known for years and have a chance? to kind of undo all of the pain that you've caused them. And you kind of go, yeah, maybe I would. Maybe, you know, maybe I, mm-hmm. if I could, maybe I would. But actually, it's just being trapped again. Like the the kind of, the sort of, the sort of hardest thing uh, really is this idea of like, there's some stuff you just have to live with. And, yes. And even if that stuff gets taken away, that doesn't fix anything. And And I think it, it elides that the solutions to the problems are in the now, right? Like, or, if, or, or even in the future. Yes, yes. In the His, history, now. history has to be lived through, right? It, we are, mm-hmm. we are constituted by the very worst moments of our own past, in some ways, right? And the whole, and, and this, and the whole I was po- going to say, in this, in this, go on, sorry, sorry, oh, go on, go on, go on. I was just going to say, and the whole point, the whole point of kind of being a being a human being, in some ways, is like, are you able to? Are you able to kind of continue living with that, right? Are you able to, uh, are you able to kind of like uh, do something productive and and full of kind of possibility with that? Absolutely, absolutely. And and I think that a similar impulse, this kind of retreat to the past, there, there's something I think very sinister in that. It, even even in the lightest implication of like. Look at what's going on with the climate and when, what are, what, what do you, I mean, like if and when anyone, anyone in a position of power acknowledges climate change, you know, like the next, the, the next song and dance immediately following that is Elon Musk and Bill Gates are teaming up with Jeff Bezos to launch a bunch of random chemicals in, into the upper atmosphere, which will, sure, it'll permanently turn the sky orange. And if we ever stop doing it, we all die instantly but it's going to solve the problem. You know, like we, we can't retreat from the actions we've taken. We have to just keep pushing through them. We have to keep working with what we've done. I, uh, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and, and listeners, listeners, let me, let me ask you a question. Everyone out there in listener land right now. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you a choice. You, you can pick one of these three. One of them is correct. Would you be 18 again? And get to get to relive your your uh, young adulthood. Uh, would you take a million dollars, or would you go to Patreon.com/slash Horror Vanguard and support <laughs> our show for way less than a million dollars and way less for the psychic damage of becoming eighteen again? 
Um, you could also go to www.horrorvanguard.com, which, yeah, I know I really need to fix up the website a bit, but it's still there. Um, and Twitter and Instagram at Horror Vanguard. There, there's a Patreon plug that's also a curse. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, dear. Oh, dear. So as we as we stand on the precipice of the man behind the glass, uh, is there anything that you would like to add? Uh, I'm excited. I'm excited for the uh, for the for the next. Uh, how many episodes? Six, 18 episodes. We've got eighteen episodes to go. Um, the road is long. Uh, the night is dark and full of terrors. But we will <laughs> keep pressing on uh, with Twin Peaks season two. How about you? I am. I am ready ready to roll here this this has been a great discussion and listeners we will see you next week uh for depending how you count episode 12 and or 4 and or episode 11 laura's secret diary it is that we have more questions than we have answers a new episode new episode kick out of this one. If the long history of the perception of owls reveals one thing, it is that we have more questions than we have answers.